Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke 20. This morning we'll be reading verses 27 through 40. Luke 20, verses 27 through 40. Please give your full attention to the perfect word of God. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. When my children were young, I would sometimes gather all of them, all five of them, and tell them to get into the car. And immediately they would start asking me, Dad, where are we going? And I would just smile and refuse to answer. And then we start driving down the road. The questions would get more intense. Dad, Dad, where are we going? Come on, Dad, tell us, where are we going? And I absolutely refused to answer. I just sat there quietly. And we would drive and we would get to the destination. And it was always, by my intention, someplace fun. Maybe the mall, maybe the ice cream shop, maybe the playground. But it was always something that was fun for them. Why did I torment them in such a way? Well, first of all, because it's kind of fun. (laughs) But it was also to teach them a lesson, a lesson about trust. To teach them that when they don't know what the future is, they can trust the one who holds their future. That even when they don't understand the future, if they know the one who controls their future, they can not only trust, but rejoice, even in the most difficult of days. To teach them that when the one who holds your future loves you very much, you know it's all going to turn out great in the end. The Lord has done something like this for his own children, for us, who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to our future, we don't know very much. The scriptures, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the scriptures are frustratingly scant in their information about what 
the future beyond this life is going to look like. We have a lot of curiosity about that, but there aren't many answers in Scripture itself. If we were to ask Jesus today, what's it going to be like in the resurrection? He would just smile and he would say, trust me, it's going to be great. In Romans chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because he has been raised from the dead, we know that death has no longer has dominion over us. Death is not the last answer to the question. Christ has conquered death. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that our sins have been paid for, and it guarantees that we too will be resurrected in the end to be with him forever. It's that certainty, not about the details of the future, but the certainty of the resurrection for those who put their faith in Christ. That's what gets us through the dark times of life. That's what gets us through the sufferings, through the trials, is knowing that no matter how dark the tunnel is that we are going through, there is always a brilliant light beyond our comprehension at the end of that tunnel. Most of the people you know don't have that hope. Most of you have people very close to you who don't have that hope of the resurrection. There's a whole book in the Bible written to describe what it's like to live without the hope of the resurrection. It's called Ecclesiastes, as Pastor Ben referred to earlier. We looked at this book a little over a year ago, and we saw how really the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes in the context of the rest of Scripture is to show us what life is like if death is the end. Death is the, the shadow, the, the, the heavy heavy darkness that hangs over the book of Ecclesiastes because it presupposes what would life be like for us if we had no hope of a resurrection life. If death is the end and this life is all that there is, what does Ecclesiastes teach us is the way to live? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Seize the moment, seize the day, grab the ple all the pleasure that you can get out of this life because... When life is over, everything's gone and you're gone. If you live with that Ecclesiastes worldview, that death is the end and you have no hope beyond it, then what do you do when the trials come? What do you do when suffering happens? What do you do when relationships get broken and your heart gets broken? If you don't have the hope of eternal life, if you don't have the hope of the resurrection, then all you can do is try to escape. And our society gives us many, many avenues to try to escape from the dark reality that death might be the end. Alcohol, drugs, sex, sports, video games, television. All of these are ways to distract ourselves from the reality of not having hope for the future. But when the power button is turned off when the bottle is empty. Reality comes crashing in. And those people without hope, they end up in despair. Or to put it in the words of the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. 
The most important question that a person needs to ask himself is what is your future? What happens after death? Does anything happen after death? Is there any hope for life after death? And is that life going to be better than this one or worse? We're going to look today at a group of people. I want to begin to give you some context to the group of people that are referred to for the first time in the book of Luke, the Sadducees. In the nation of Israel, in the, among the people of the Jews in the first century, there were two main parties, and I want to use parties, you think of political parties, and they were somewhat political, but they were also religious parties. But there were two main parties. We've been dealing with the Pharisees over and over again. They've been very prominent in the, in the gospel according to Luke, the Pharisees and their opposition to Jesus. But here, for the very first time, Luke, and it's the only time he mentions the Sadducees. Matter of fact, it's interesting that he only mentions in his first book, Luke, he only mentions the Sadducees once, but when you come to the book of Acts, he mentions them a number of times. They become much more prominent after the death of Jesus because it says in the book of Acts that the apostles were persecuted by the Sadducees because they pre preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were generally, not all of them, but all, mostly they were from the, the the class of the priests among the Jews. They were the priests. They were the ones who cared for the temple and the sacrifices. They were, interestingly, wealthy. They were powerful. They were the aristocrats of Jewish society. Unlike the Pharisees, as Luke mentions here at the beginning, unlike the Pharisees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That means they didn't believe they believe that when the body dies, the soul dies, and that's it. There's no life after death for the body or the soul. And so that's what Luke is referring to when he says they, don't believe, they didn't believe in the resurrection. In Acts 23, there's an interesting little, speaking of the book of Acts, there's an interesting interaction that takes place when Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin to give an answer for what he's preaching. He mentions immediately and intentionally and strategically that he's been preaching the resurrection because what happens then is a big debate breaks out among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the that made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, and they forget about Paul and they start arguing with each other about whether the resurrection is true or not. As Luke explains it there in Acts 23, he says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Well, you just look at the life. When we don't know much about the Sadducees. There's not much that, is, that we know actually outside of Scripture about the Sadducees. But just look at the effect of living for this life only and not believing in any hope beyond this life. Look at the effect it had on their lives. What was salvation to them? It was, it was totally spelled out in earthly terms. That's why they were wealthy, because you better be as wealthy as possible to enjoy as much pleasure in this life as you can. That's why they seized power and were, were seen among the most powerful in Jewish society. It's why status was so important to them, because make your, make your mark now. Leave your name, you know, put your name on a building somewhere. This is the only way that you're going to have any importance with your short life. And it'll all be done when you die. They were disliked by the people in general because they were seen as collaborators with the Romans. The Romans 
had total power and authority over the Jewish people. And so if you want to live the good life, you might as well, you might as well, you know, kiss up to the people who are in power so that you can live as good a life in this world as possible. And unlike the Pharisees, they supported the Roman rule. So that's who they are. That's who the Sadducees are. And here in chapter 20, what they do is they approach Jesus in front of the crowds in Jerusalem. This is, again, the last week of Jesus' life, on his earthly life. They approach him in front of the crowds, and they challenge him with one of their favorite questions. I'm sure they had stumped Pharisees with this many times. They test him with a hypothetical situation of a man who marries a woman, but then he dies before he's able to have to, to have a, a son or to have an heir for his name and his possessions and all that to be passed on to the next generation. He dies childless. So his widow, his wife, according to a, kind of an obscure law of Moses called the Leverite marriage, he, the brother of the man is to marry the widow and bear an heir so that the name of the deceased brother can be carried on to another generation. Well, we don't know a lot about that law, and it sounds, seems like from history it wasn't really followed very often. We do have one example of it, uh, an attempt to follow it, is when uh, Ruth, uh, the widow Ruth, uh, had to marry, or actually had the privilege of marrying, Boaz, who was not her dead husband's brother, but the nearest relative who was willing to marry her, and that was a Leverite marriage. And so that's what they're referring to. Well, the Sadducees come up with this outlandish scenario of a woman marrying seven brothers. So the first brother dies, the second brother dies, the third brother dies, all the way up to seven brothers she ends up marrying. None of them provide an heir, and then she dies. Now, I doubt this ever happened. I don't think they're referring to anything that happened historically. They've come up with this hypothetical case in order to mock the idea of a resurrection because their question is, whose wife will she be when the resurrection happens. My first question would have been, if I were in Jesus' sandals, my first question would have been, what in the world was she putting in the stew of her husband's? (laughs) Sounds like a serial killer to me. (laughs) You see, the Sadducees were confident that Jesus couldn't give an answer that didn't make belief in the resurrection seem silly. But instead, he silenced them. As he did, we, this is a, just the next in a series, long series of challenges from the leaders of the Jewish people to try to discredit Jesus, and instead he discredits them. How can we be certain about the resurrection? What's interesting is if you go to Matthew's account of this confrontation, the parallel account of this over in the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew includes, I think, an important statement that Jesus made that Luke doesn't include here. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus' first response to the Sadducees is this. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He says to the Sadducees, you think you know, but you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Let's look at the second one first because that's what Jesus deals with first. The power of God to bring about a glorious resurrection. If you truly understand the power of God, you will not doubt his power and intention to renew this creation. He first of all refers to the power of God to save sinners. 
That's what he says in verse 35. He says, those who are considered worthy, he refers to those who are the believers who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead. You cannot be resurrected to life, and that's, again, the assumption under this, he's talking about being resurrected to life with God, to the new heavens, the new earth, to live with God eternally. You will not be considered or brought into that resurrection of life unless you are, as it says here in the ESV, considered worthy. Now, with that language, and I'm not actually, it's not my favorite way to translate that, because in that language, it makes it sound like we have to do something to prove ourselves in order to be a part of the resurrection. But what's interesting, if you go to the original language and you look at what it literally says, it, instead of considered worthy, a better translation is counted worthy or made worthy. What Jesus is saying here is not that we must, that something must be done by us, but something must be done to us to make us worthy. And what is that something? Well, we're going to talk about Abraham in just a minute. When, but Paul talks about the basis on which Abraham was considered worthy to be a part of the resurrection of the just. He says in Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about. Faith leads to you being counted as righteous, counted as worthy. We are saved by faith and not by works. Forgiveness is a gift. Forgiveness and a record of righteousness is a gift. You must not only be forgiven for all the sins you've committed in thought, word, and deed, but you must be considered righteous before a holy God in order to enter into eternity to live with him. But that's a gift that's given by faith. The forgiveness that comes at the cross, the blood that was shed by our Lord Jesus Christ to take away our sin, to clean us of all that we've done wrong and thought wrong. And also the record of Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness that he lived as, as the, both God and man during his time on earth. That perfect righteousness is credited to those who put their faith in him. That is how we are considered worthy. We are counted worthy. We are made worthy by an act of God's grace. So verse 36, again, Jesus is talking about the resurrection of believers. He says, they cannot die anymore. We have to pause for a moment and acknowledge the dark and, and, and terrible fact that, there are so, that everybody is going to live beyond the grave. Everybody's existence is going to go on beyond the grave, according to Scripture. The Bible also teaches about the resurrection of the wicked to eternal punishment. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, Christ's voice, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If by faith you have not received the forgiveness of your sins and been given by faith the gift of Christ's righteousness, then when you die, you will continue to exist eternally to pay for all your sin. That's what the scriptures teach. And that's what Jesus affirms. 
One of my favorite songs by Bob Dylan is called Precious Angel. And there's one line in that song that uh, I, I, it, it, it sets me back every time I hear it. This is how it goes. Talking about unbelievers, those who die and have to pay for their sin in eternity. This is what he says. Can they imagine the darkness that will fall from on high when men will beg God to kill them and they won't be able to die? What a blessing to know salvation by faith alone in Christ and for Christ to describe believers here as saying they cannot die anymore. Death has no more dominion over us because Christ has paid the price. But Jesus goes on to say something that I don't know about you, but I know when I first read it and tried to understand it, it troubled me a bit. He says that those who are resurrected to life, to be with God for eternity, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Marriage is such a big deal in this life. Sadducees thought that, you know, this is, this is just how earthly they thought. They thought, okay, if you're talking about eternal life in the resurrection, then it must be kind of like this life just a lot longer. But remember, Jesus is proving the point here. You do not understand the power of God. You do not understand the power of God to create a new heavens and a new earth that is beyond your comprehension. What he's saying to the Sadducees is that they are trying to put new wine into old wineskins, trying to fit an idea of a future glory that can fit into the, 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 the shadow of this fallen world. They're not noticing or not, not recognizing the radical difference between this age and the next one. If you're a believer, you have the hope not just of an eternal life, but of a glorified life. Paul speaks in his writings in the New Testament about a radical change in our bodies that will accompany the perfection of our souls when Christ returns. Listen to how he describes it in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Sadducees, you do not know the power of God. To create a new heavens and a new earth, a purified soul, and a glorious body like his own resurrection body. It's interesting, over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also talks about our resurrection body. And he describes it as a seed. He decides this body is a seed as we look forward to that resurrection body, which will be far greater than just the seed. Listen to how he describes it beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. He goes on in verse 42 to say, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Whatever 
our glorious future resurrection body is going to be like, this body, in hindsight, is going to look like just a seed. Far less than what it will be. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, if you're familiar with it, uh, tells about, it's basically a story about citizens of hell who are taken on a bus ride to heaven, to visit heaven. And one thing that really strikes you as you start to understand that story is that those who are in hell are ghosts. But when these ghosts get to heaven, they find out that not only everything in heaven, but particularly the people in heaven are intensely heavy, dense. And what Lewis is trying to say there is that if you go to hell after this life, what you will be will be far less than what you are now. But when you go to heaven, you'll be far more than what you are now. Well, let's get back to the idea of marriage, though. He's saying that marriage is temporary. Marriage is for this life, for this age. It has no purpose in the resurrection world. It will be unnecessary. He says in verse 36, these believers, they cannot die anymore. There will be no childbirth in the resurrection. There will be no need for procreation. In this age, procreation is important. It's part of God's mandate from the beginning. The purpose of sexual relations is to bear children, among other things. And it is, as you bear children, to leave a heritage for the generation to come. But in the resurrection, we will not die. Is Jesus saying that we're not going to have a joyful reunion with our spouses in heaven? I don't think so. That's not his point. It's not the point that he's trying to make. He's not saying that when husbands and wives are reunited in the resurrection, that they're not going to have still a very special relationship because of their relationship here on earth. He's not saying that. That's not what he's addressing. The scriptures imply in many different places and ways that when we get to heaven and when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to recognize each other. There's continuity between who we are and our experiences here and, and even the way we appear here and we're, what, what we'll be like in the resurrection. David, when his infant son died, even though he'd known his infant son for a very short time, he said, I will go to him. He knew that they would be reunited. He expected a reunion. He expected that to be joyful. What Jesus is getting at here, here's what his point is. He's saying that once sin is removed, relationships will be perfect. Once sin and conflict and everything that makes our relationships so hard and difficult in this life will be removed. Relationships will be pure. Relationships will be holy. They'll be open. They'll be honest. They'll be trusting in every way because we will be made like our Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage won't be necessary for the same reason that we won't have to have written contracts. We have written contracts because we're liars by nature. We break promises by nature. In the new heavens and the new earth, we won't need contracts and we won't need marriage. We won't need to make commitments that we're accountable for because we will be thoroughly trustworthy. 
Whereas it used to trouble me to think that there won't be marriage in the new heavens and the new earth, now I find great peace about that and great joy knowing that I'm not going to love my wife less in the resurrection. I'm going to love her a lot more and a lot better. Marriage here and now is temporary. And I want to make clear that what we are waiting for in the resurrection is not primarily to be reunited with our loved ones. And too often we focus on that. That's going to be wonderful. I'm really looking forward to that. But that's not going to be the greatest joy of heaven. What is marriage purpose according to scripture in this age? It's to point us to the bridegroom. We are the church. We are the bride. He is the bridegroom. And that is going to be the great joy of the new heavens and the new earth is being fully united to the bridegroom who is Christ our Lord. That is the relationship that's going to be at the center and the focus of our lives. So we've looked at the fact that the, the Sadducees did not understand the power of God to create this glorious new reality without sin and with perfection and glory beyond our description. The second thing that Jesus said is that they didn't know the scriptures. Because the scriptures, and of course we're talking about the Old Testament scriptures in this context with Jesus talking to the Sadducees. The Old Testament scriptures promise resurrection. Since they quoted Moses in their question with the lever at marriage, Jesus points them back to something about Moses in the Pentateuch in the book of Deuteronomy. He points them to the passage about the bush. Now that's a funny way of saying it, isn't it? That's because he couldn't say, go back to Genesis 3, because they didn't have chapters and verses back then. So he said, go back to the passage about the bush, where, where and everybody knew who he was talking about, where, where uh, Moses stood before the burning bush. And he says that during that encounter between Moses and God, God calls himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, see, the resurrection is true. The hope of life after death is true. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive based on that statement of that description. Now, reading that in English, that might not be obvious to us. But when a Jewish person in the first century heard God described as the God of Abraham, he understood that that was a, a relationship, a covenant relationship between God and Abraham. And if you're going to say that God is the God of Abraham, then Abraham must still be alive because that covenant relationship still exists. For instance... If I were to say to you, if I were to introduce you to a, a person and I said, this is, this is the doctor that my father had while he was still living, I might say to you, I want to introduce you to the, the, my, the doctor who was my father's doctor. He was my father's doctor. I would not describe him as being the doctor of my father. I would not say it that way. I would say he was my father's doctor. I wouldn't say he is my father's doctor because if I say he is my father's doctor, then that's implying my father is still alive. My father is not still alive. That's, you know, it's a very simple point, but that's what Jesus is saying. Moses understood that even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived long before him and had died, they still were in a covenant relationship with God. There was life after death. As Jesus says of the Father, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The ultimate assurance of us having an eternal relationship with God is the covenant promise that he has made. 
In verse 36, he says, they cannot die anymore because they're sons of God. How could the sons of God die? If you've been forgiven, if you've been adopted by grace, if you've been made a child of God, how could God allow you to die and exist no more? And this is what Paul's referring to in Romans 14, verses 8 and 9, when he says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. But Jesus could have easily pointed to other portions of the Old Testament scripture. There are some scholars who think that the Sadducees only uh, believed that the first five books, the books of Moses, were inspired. Uh, other scholars and commentators that I trust say that we don't know that, that there's no real evidence of that. We don't know if that's true. But we know that the rest of the Old Testament is inspired of God. It is the word of God. And it clearly testifies to life after death and a future resurrection of a new heavens and a new earth. In Job chapter 19, Job, who was a contemporary probably of the time of Abraham, Job says this, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. In my flesh, I will see God. He expect the full restoration of body and soul at the return of his Redeemer. David says, as we heard earlier from Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11, David says to God, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isaiah gives this prophecy in chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. The earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel, in chapter Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And now I'm going to move briefly to the New Testament, but it's a New Testament passage that talks about all the believers of the Old Testament, the saints in Hebrews chapter 11. Why, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar on Mount Moriah, why did Abraham obey? The writer of Hebrews tells us why. In verse 19, it says that Abraham believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham believed in God's power and his word to bring about a resurrection. And then Hebrews 11 actually goes on to talk about all the Old Testament saints who believed and he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. The Old Testament hope was the hope of resurrection. God's word promises the resurrection. It will happen because God has never broken a promise. He is faithful. The polls tell us that about 80% of Americans believe in some kind of life after death. But so many Americans live for this life. They invest their time, their energy, and their resources and their treasures in this life. They live for this life, the pleasures, the rewards of this life. Our hope 
is beyond this life and it makes a tremendous amount of difference in your worldview and the way you live day in and day out. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That hope that death is not the end, but a beginning to an eternity of life and perfection that will drive your life day in and day out. That is the hope that enables you to endure the trials and the sufferings and the broken relationships and the darkness of this fallen world and the struggle with your own sin. That's what gets you through it, is that there is always a light that is bright beyond your comprehension at the end of every tunnel. The best is always yet to come. The journey that our Father has put us on always ends in a great place. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, the driving motivation of your sanctification is to be like the one who's one day you will look like him. You know that this work will be completed. You know that one day you will be like Christ. You'll have a glorified resurrection body and you will have a soul that is purged of sin that cannot die, but will live in fellowship with God and his people forever. Someone once said, and I love this phrase, he said, you realize that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are only in the doorway of our existence. That is our hope. Let's thank the Lord for it. Father, we thank you not only that we have a future beyond death, but that that future is with you that that future is far greater, far more glorious than we can even imagine in the shadows of this fallen world. Father, teach us to live by that hope. Teach us to not invest our time and energies and resources in the shallow and temporary passing pleasures of this life. Lord, renew within us the hope of resurrection and eternity with you. Thank you, Lord for your power. Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for life in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.